Somewhere outside of Sydney, Australia, a scientist named Katie Green is working with silicon. Silicon that took years to create in Russia and was grown into pure crystalline form in Germany. She's using that silicon to create a new weight and measure. A kilo, the perfect kilo, a sphere, the roundest sphere ever created on Earth. It's perfect, and it weighs exactly a kilo. Today in Hastings, where I'm recording this, the weather was perfect, 40 degrees, cloudy, raining, cold, perfect for the ecosystem, the plants, the way nature needed it to be. And about 50 years ago, a guy named Bob Dylan recorded a record called Like a Rolling Stone. In a roundup a few years ago, Rolling Stone magazine picked it as the perfect rock and roll song, the best one of the million that the critics had listened to. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. And now a word from ZipRecruiter, our presenting sponsor. What can a comfy office chair teach you about running a business? Hi, I'm Ian Siegel, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Being an entrepreneur and owning a business has been quite a ride, and I've learned a few things along the way on how to make it go smoother, like what management lessons you can learn from a cushy office chair. More on that later in the show. I founded ZipRecruiter because I knew there was a smarter way for businesses to find talent. Today, companies of all sizes and industries use ZipRecruiter to fill their hiring needs. And if you're hiring now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Seth. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Seth. See you later in the show. We're here to talk about perfect and quality. Here's the thing. That sphere that Katie is working so hard to create, the one that will be exactly a kilo, of course, It can't be exactly a kilo. It will be off by an atom or two. Even more profound, though, while it is the roundest thing ever created on Earth, it's not as round as the Earth is. If we blew Katie's sphere up to the size of the Earth, it would be more rough and misshapen than the Earth itself, even if we count the Grand Canyon and the Marianas Trench. So no, It's not perfect. It's just really, really close to what it's supposed to be. And what about the weather? Well, if you were planning a picnic today, the weather is not even close to perfect. And Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan is the first person to tell you he has never recorded a song that's perfect. Timings are off. Notes are out of tune. He could redo it again and again and again. And it would never be the ideal perfect version of Like a Rolling Stone. So what is perfect anyway? Well, if we try to get through the words, we can start by looking for the word quality. But the word quality is also widely misused and misunderstood. So let's try to take that one in pieces. Some people define quality as deluxeness, that a $300 cashmere scarf is higher quality than an acrylic neck warmer that you bought for $9 on sale at the sporting goods store. But what does that even mean? Will one keep you warmer than the other? 
So that leads to the second definition of quality, not deluxeness, but meeting spec. If we could announce in advance what the specification is, and you meet it, if you fit inside the measurements and the timing and the cost and the duration and anything else we can specify, then you have achieved quality, showing up with exactly what you were asked for. And a third definition might be right effort, the quality of putting your best foot forward, of saying, here, I made this. If we think about meeting spec, it turns out that this is a pretty recent occurrence. 150 years ago, if you went to a hardware store and you bought a three-quarter inch nut and a three-quarter inch bolt, the odds are they would not fit together. That in those days, it was made by hand. The nut was made to fit the bolt and vice versa. That any object that you purchased that was machined, a cotton gin, some sort of big industrial system, each piece was hand-whittled and formed to fit with every other piece. Beginning in France a couple hundred years ago, the idea of interchangeable parts began to spread. The United States government demanded that anyone that was going to supply it with armaments and weapons had to build them using interchangeable parts, that if something broke, you could buy a replacement. This was a really big deal. The Singer sewing machine became the most complicated device most families had ever owned. And the way they achieved market dominance was by building everything on interchangeable parts. So if something broke, unlike every other machine that you encountered, you didn't have to go to a skilled craft person who was going to rebuild that part by hand. You could merely buy a replacement part, and the replacement part would fit. And so we have industrialism. The idea that we can use interchangeable parts to build complicated systems. But once you need interchangeable parts, you have to have specs. Because if one person wants a three-quarter inch bolt to be one size, and someone else wants it to be a different size, they're not going to fit. The challenge that the designers had was, what should the tolerance be? Just as Katie cannot make a sphere that is exactly a kilo, you cannot make a three-quarter inch nut that is exactly three-quarters of an inch. We can't get the tolerance to be perfect. But what engineers discovered when they met with the business people, when they met with the production people, was that narrow tolerances, getting it as close as possible to right, were too expensive. The reason they're so expensive is because if someone makes a part that's not quite right, you've got to discard it. And so the system doesn't work well unless your tolerances are wide unless you make it so everything can sort of fit everything else, because then you can ratchet up production. Years ago, my dad used all of his resources to buy out of bankruptcy a hospital crib company. It was in Buffalo, New York, still is, with a union workforce, UAW. You walk in, it's a real factory. And what I noticed when I was walking around there as a teenager was just how many parts and pieces and bins and bins of stuff there were, everywhere you looked, covered in a thin film of grease. Why would you do it that way? Well, the reason you do it that way is simple. Because on the assembly line, when it's time to put piece number 817 into piece number 452, 
the worker grabs one of the pieces out of the bin and tries to put it together. If it doesn't fit, if it's outside of the tolerance, he throws it out and grabs another one. Because it's cheaper to make a lot at a time, and it's cheaper to keep the assembly line moving. That the idea is lower what you're expecting, make a wider tolerance for what you'll put up with, and keep the line moving. Well, a guy named Edwards Deming saw that this was happening and came to the car companies a few generations ago. And he said to them, you're doing it wrong. In order to make a better car, a car without creaks and rattles, a car that's going to drive 100,000 miles, not 20,000 miles, in order to build a car that's not just cheap but good, you have to do the opposite. You have to raise your standards. You have to make the tolerances more specific. And they laughed at him. And so he left the United States and went to Japan. And he taught Toyota and Nissan and the other Japanese car companies a different way to make cars. The idea is super simple when you think about it. Be really clear about the specification. Define quality at every step along the way and make your tolerances more and more specific. So if you walked into a Japanese car company in the 80s, it would look a lot like the hard hospital crib company looks today. Almost no parts lying around. In fact, in many situations, there's just a couple. Instead of a bin of a thousand nuts and bolts, there might be two or three. The work person reaches into the bin, grabs a piece, puts it in place. If it doesn't fit, she turns off the entire assembly line. She pulls a cord and everything stops. And they go upstream to the person who made those nuts or the person who made that tire or the person who made that muffler, the supplier who brought it in. And they said, we just turned off our entire assembly line because that part you gave us wasn't to spec. The quality was poor. So here's the question. How many times do you think they have to turn off the assembly line before the tolerance on parts improves? That's right. It gets better fast. And now, a Lexus is made with parts that fit together like no two machine parts in the world could have fit together 100 years ago. In 1984, if you bought a Toyota Corolla, one of the cheapest cars available, it was better quality than a Rolls-Royce better quality than a Cadillac. Not defining quality as deluxeness, but defining quality as meeting spec. And because the parts met spec, the car met spec. So there's a first useful definition of quality. Not is it perfect, but does it meet spec? One way to measure the quality of something that's seeking to meet spec is to record defects, to record how often the thing you're working with comes in the way you expected it. The shorthand for this is Six Sigma. Six Sigma operations mean that one out of a million times something's not going to meet spec. I'm really in favor of Six Sigma manufacturing. I think it has saved many lives. That if you need a pacemaker... I hope you'll get yourself a Six Sigma one. That if you're getting a CAT scan, 
I hope you go into a machine that doesn't burst into flame very often. And if you're on a lonely country road driving along, I'm hoping your car was built by someone who understands the value of meeting spec. The idea spread. It spread outside of cars. The CD was introduced by Sony. Perfect sound forever. Bits is bits. Every time, exactly the same. Meeting spec. The digital world exploded on this idea. We don't have interchangeable parts in the sense of nuts and bolts. We have interchangeable files. We have interchangeable protocols. We have APIs that talk to one another. The internet is impossible. But one of the reasons it's impossible is that no one's in charge, that standards are exchanged and evolved, and strangers who will never meet in person exchange all sorts of information that plugs right into another with near-perfect tolerance. Bits is bits. It spreads. Now we've got the confluence of the internet and industrialism pushing each of us to be a perfect cog in a high-quality system, to be Six Sigma, to deliver what's promised ever faster and ever cheaper. And many of us have benefited from this. But it's not a great way to go to work, and it's not necessarily a great way to live your life. At the same time that we are polishing and perfecting and industrializing, at the same time that FedEx delivers it guaranteed overnight, and at the same time that Amazon lowers prices and raises quality scores day after day after day, in that very same world, vinyl sales go up year after year. For the last 20 years, breaking the record from the year before. Vinyl, vinyl LPs. Is there anything more imperfect than a vinyl LP? Slightly out of round, cracks, pops, sounds different almost every time. Your vinyl LP different than theirs. It might be a little warped. There's wow, there's flutter. It's analog through and through, top to bottom. Where's the Six Sigma? Where's the spec? Why do sales keep going up? Here's my take. My take is that as humans, this Six Sigma thing can get out of hand. As humans, maybe we've got enough of that sort of quality. And there might be a different sort of quality that we seek. This could be the quality of wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi means imperfect, handmade, irreplaceable. Wabi-sabi tells a story. Wabi-sabi is incomplete. Wabi-sabi, from the Japanese, a compound of two words pushed together. Wabi, which means lots of things, nature, breathing, living, a hermit. Sabi, rust, withered, perhaps a little bit of sadness. Put them together, wabi and sabi, and we are seeing something different, the opposite of the Six Sigma perfection. Where did it come from? In Leonard Corin's groundbreaking book on wabi-sabi, he gives us a peek into the history of how it evolved. 400 years ago, status mattered as much as it matters now, maybe even more. In Japan, one way to demonstrate one's status was through the tea ceremony. Not just to drink tea, but 
a very specific performance held in a building that was built for no other purpose. A tea ceremony existed as a way to demonstrate that you had good taste and that you had resources. Over time, the tea ceremony evolved to become more and more ornate. Rich practitioners would import utensils from China, gilded, covered with gold, each more polished and more perfect than the other. The perfect sphere of silicon of today. How perfect could we possibly make it? A man who dedicated his life to the tea ceremony, Sen no Rikyu, started bringing a different point of view to it. He embraced folk-made utensils from Korea or Japan, deliberately imperfect, deliberately more natural. And this conflict between the more organic approach, the one-of-a-kind approach, the approach that rejected the idea of perfection and quality as others wanted to measure it, created a challenge for those who wanted the simpler method of just spending more money, of having it be like everybody else's. Well, fast forward to today, and we see it happening again and again. The Kindle might be a fine place to read books, but it has no wabi, it has no sabi. It is merely a collection of letters. All the books look the same. Yes, you can carry a thousand books around in your pocket, but all of them are the same. There is no patina. Every book looks and feels the same. You don't remember where you bought that book. You have no recollection of who you lent it to, who touched it beforehand. There's no coffee stain or folded pages or notes in the margin. It's sterile. It's perfect. It meets a certain sort of spec. It's worth noting that for books sold to a mass audience, Kindle sales have stalled because people who like to buy books like to buy books. They like to hold them. They like to have them in their library next to the other books. That the patina, the patina inside the book, the patina the books even create is a form of wabi-sabi. So as we think about our work, the work each of us does every day, the question we need to ask is, are we a cog in an ever-perfecting machine? It used to be that they measured how much a kilo weighed by basing it on a lump, a misshapen lump in a vault in France. But they soon decided it wasn't perfect enough, that the tolerance wasn't acceptable. So they went down the path of creating the most perfect sphere in the world. And if you're Katie, counting the molecules and the atoms and trying to make the sphere ever more perfect, this, this is good work. But for the person who is merely standing in, standing in for the robot that hasn't been built yet, the artificial intelligence that hasn't been programmed yet, standing in as a machine, a human machine, stamping things out one after another at the Six Sigma rate of quality, we need to ask a question. The question is, do we want to meet spec personally? Do we want to be part of somebody else's API? What would it mean to embrace wabi-sabi in our own work, to be the vinyl version, not the CD? What would it mean to have the rough edges, and yes, the rust, that wabi-sabi brings with it? When we are more organic and more human, when we cannot be easily put into a box, pigeonholed, 
instantly understood, discarded, and replaced. When we seek to be the linchpin instead of the cog, what does that do to our work? I think there's another kind of quality that's available to each of us. It is the quality of meeting spec, and the spec is making a promise. But the promise is not, I can do it faster and cheaper and within narrower bounds than anybody else you can find on Upwork or Fiverr. It might be that the promise is exactly the opposite of that. That you will pay a lot, but that you will get more than you pay for. That you will be surprised and delighted. That there will be rough edges. The quality of meaningful work. The work of I did my best. The work of it is not perfect, but it is unique. Each of us, ironically, in this moment of digitization and industrialization, in this race for ever more gilded status, each of us has the opportunity to do something else. And that something else is to be the person we set out to be. In a minute, I'll be back with answers to your questions from the last episode. But first, here's a message from our presenting sponsor, Zip Recruiter. If you've got a question about this episode, I would love to hear it. Drop me a note by visiting akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. And if we can, we'll answer them here on the podcast. We got some great questions about the last episode. In fact, if I wanted to, I could make an entire podcast about infinite games. Hi again. This is Ian Siegel, CEO and co-founder of ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. How do you know if you're ready to start a business? Early on in our company history, I decided to buy $1,000 chairs for every employee. At the time, we probably had less than 10 employees, and I never thought this would become a big cost. When new hire started, I realized we had these overly expensive chairs, and I tried to buy new chairs. Unfortunately, what I learned is that if you have two classes of chairs in an organization, it's a recipe for a civil war. Nothing will make you great at running a business, and nothing will perfectly prepare you. The best advice I have, start your business. That's the importance of just jumping in. I hope you found it helpful. Here's something else that may be helpful. If you're hiring, you can try ZipRecruiter for free today. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's top job boards. So great candidates have a lot of different ways to find your job. To get started, go to ZipRecruiter.com Seth. That's ZipRecruiter.com Seth. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hey, Seth. It's Reese from New York City. Okay, my question is, do you think chasing scarcity is futile? I mean, by definition, if something is scarce, then the majority of people won't attain it. And your argument in favor of playing an infinite game instead of chasing scarcity seems a bit like an attempt to pacify the majority of people who have lost. Thanks for that, but I fear we have a misunderstanding. Let me try to say it in reverse. Let's say you're going to a friend's house for Thanksgiving, and before everyone comes over... Your friend says, how are we going to structure this so I can earn back all the effort I put into making dinner? How am I going to get my sister to pay up? How am I going to be able to engage with my dad so that I make a little bit of profit from today's event? I think that would sound totally weird. The reason it would sound weird 
is because family is an infinite game. We don't try to end family. We don't try to win at family. The purpose of family is to be in the family, to make it deeper and wider and better and more colorful and more vivid, more important. So I think everyone can agree that that's the way we ought to engage with people around Thanksgiving dinner. So why all of a sudden is it different when we're talking about software? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be when we talk about the fact that we can sweep our front walk merely because sweeping our front walk makes everyone in the neighborhood feel a little bit better. So as we think about finite versus infinite games, I think we have to begin with the idea that they are different things and we can approach them with a different mindset. That the purpose of culture is not to enable capitalism, but maybe, just maybe, the purpose of capitalism is to enable culture. Hi, Seth. It's Lara from San Francisco. How might you gain enrollment for the infinite game when leadership is focused on the finite game? Thanks, Laura. Getting enrollment from the people you work with is a challenge for lots of things that are new. It was hard to get enrollment in the 80s and 90s to put an email system in because management might not have seen what you see. So we have, in this case, the case of the infinite game, the case of the opportunity to make something that helps the culture merely because we can, merely because it lets us play more in a richer environment, that might conflict with someone whose worldview is, I need to increase shareholder value today so the stock price will go up tomorrow. Persuading somebody that they are wrong about what they want is a very difficult task. So it seems to me that in the short run, we've got two choices. One, we can go forward with our new attitude without asking permission. It doesn't cost a lot of money, and it begins to pay dividends. Once those dividends start to appear, give the boss credit. She'll want more of them. Repeat, and again and again. The other alternative is to be able to outline how feeding the community first pays off. It pays off even through the lens of somebody who's trying to win in a world that's based on scarcity. We certainly can agree, I hope, that the Linux revolution, which led to Red Hat, which led to the servers that run most of the internet, which was built as an infinite game, has paid dividends for lots of people in that community. I hope we can agree that all that volunteer time and effort that went into Wikipedia didn't go into it for selfish reasons, It went into it because we live in a world that's a little bit easier to understand. Hi, Seth. This is Ross Martin in Fulton, Maryland. Question about the infinite game. You talked about someone playing the short game versus the infinite game. But what about someone who is playing a different game with different goals and prizes, but on the same turf, and their playing of the game can completely change the outcome of your game? Thanks for this, Ross. You're highlighting something that's important here, which is that in between the finite game, and the infinite game is the long-term game, often played by a large organization that can completely disrupt part of the industry. So a simple example, RSS readers were the way that many, many people kept up with blogs and podcasts. Then Google, which is playing a very long game to organize the world's information, launched Google Reader. It quickly 
took over the market because it was well-designed and it was free. Google realized it didn't match their revenue maximization goals, so they shut it down. While all the people who had been making RSS readers had intelligently quit the market because there was no market, Google had destroyed the market by playing a longer-term game. Hence, disruption follows. Or consider the case of Amazon. Jeff has publicly stated that he's playing a very long game. So if you own a store that sells stuff just like Amazon does, but maybe not quite as much in stock and maybe not quite as well organized and definitely not as aggressively priced, you've got a problem because your biggest competitor is playing a game far, far longer than you can afford to play. So what we're looking at as a competitor is an understanding that we need to seek out parts of the market where we can play our own version of a long game, eliminating the short-term profit seeker, but where we're not interesting enough to have a bigger entity play an even longer game that we can't keep up with. Thanks again for listening. We'll see everybody next week. Go make a ruckus. People are talking about the marketing seminar. I was completely blown away. It is incredibly comprehensive. Crazy, crazy, crazy useful. It's, it's easily worth five times what I paid for the course. The content in the class was awesome. What I learned, I actually could apply immediately and get results. I thought it's going to be kind of an automated course. And the big shock is the cohort. I have never felt more supported in any online program I've done. And that actually changed the way we talk about the project. It changed the way we promote it on our website. I use it in other projects. A way to really evaluate it and to apply it that I have never experienced anywhere else. It's so much more than just a marketing seminar. Find out more at themarketingseminar.com.